Like an old movie removed from frame, I am floating and looking for someone to blame. Won't you project me on the walls of your heart? I'm waiting for the real thing to start. Hello, and welcome back to The Real Thing. I am your host, Joe Lawrence, and it is good to be back. Apologies for the accidental, unexpected hiatus, but things got pretty busy and some things didn't pan out the way that I thought they would, so we had to take a little bit of a break. But that's, uh, that's life. C'est la vie. Que sera, sera. But we're back and we're ready to do some more episodes and I'm feeling good and excited and ready to to do that. We have some really fun stuff coming up, which I'm not quite ready to announce, but I guess that's a fun tease that there is some fun stuff coming to you over the summer. And we have a couple more fun episodes coming before that happens, but I'll just continue to be vague until I have everything ready to tell and that's going to be really exciting, so just be prepared for that. So this podcast is an extension of Bergen Film Club, which is an independent cinema in Bergen, Norway. The film club's main goal is giving a voice to those who deserve it, revealing insights into unknown cultures and showing awesome movies. And in this podcast, I talk about the films included in the film club's extensive program of films, past, present and future. And today... I don't think that I'm actually doing that. We're doing something a little different. Today I was joined by two of Bergen Film Club's board members to talk about a inner conflict that has been running in, in the film club for the past semester or so. We are particularly talking about the director, Brian De Palma. This semester we did a double feature evening of Brian De Palma where we showed Femme Fatale and Raising Cain and there was some discourse there that the person who showed it, Bendik, uh, friend of the podcast, he he loves De Palma, probably one of his favourite directors and I believe Scorsese is his favourite but he was so excited to show this but then we have Martin on the other hand who is a De Palma hater. So that's that's the that's the vibe of today's episode is that those two are going to come together and talk about why they do and don't like De Palma and kind of get into the discussion of uh what it is to not like a director or mainly a discussion of how do maybe slightly controversial films fit into our modern day view of cinema and film which was really cool. It was a lot of fun to moderate and to sit and watch them talk. They have great banter. And yeah, once again, hyping up something that you're going to hear in like two minutes. So that's going to be a lot of fun. But first, in classic The Real Thing fashion, we'll start with some recommendations going all over the place, kind of. So, But it was it was okay. And there was some pretty gnarly nasty um visuals which i'm always a fan of i love gore 
and stuff. So that was kind of cool. I watched uh, Stoker, um, which is a Nicole Kidman and Mia Wasikowska movie directed by Park Chan-wook, which I think is one of his very few English movies. And that was pretty cool, but also kind of strange and not entirely fleshed out. And I also watched... I'm really wrapping these off, but I honestly haven't really been doing much else apart from being at school or playing the new Zelda game. So my time has been occupied, but I also watched Clock, which is a brand new film from 2023, directed by Alexis Jacknow. And it follows a woman sort of on the eve of her 37th or 38th birthday. She has never wanted children, but then sort of like the pressure of her friends and her husband make her decide to want to have children she goes into this sort of like experimental thing so that she can get pregnant basically uh it wasn't great but it wasn't terrible and i thought that the lead actress diana agron who you may know from glee um she was great i thought she she gives I saw her in Shiver Baby quite recently, and she gives, like, such muted but very emotional, poignant uh, delivery, I guess, and acting, and I thought that she was great. She was absolutely, I mean, she was the lead, but she was absolutely the highlight of the film. Uh, but yeah, that was a, it was good. I thought that she was really, like, the shining star of that. But, oh, okay, I have to talk about this, actually. I saw Boas Afraid, uh, and I'm going to talk about this maybe next week a bit more. Yeah, ooh, that's a tease. <laughs> you don't know, you don't get to know how I felt about it. Uh, but I loved it. I loved it, basically. But uh, we'll, we'll talk about that next week. But I, I don't know if that was, I don't know if that was recommendations, but that was, uh, yeah, I, I just, I've been very busy, I've been doing jellyfish shit, and, uh, I mean, I've done nothing this week apart from play Zelda, really. Um, but yeah, it's uh, summer is potentially here in Bergen, and the allergies are flying. They are real. My nose is blocked, and I'm ready to do some podcasting. So let's jump into the episode. I think that we're just going to jump straight in with the interview, because I think that it sort of speaks for itself. We're talking about Brian De Palma. Whether he is an amazing, influential director or someone who doesn't deserve a place in our film zeitgeist of 2023. Yeah, so I'm sitting with Bendik Vixness and Martin Hugin, yeah, from BFK. And yeah, so we're, today we're going to be talking about Brian De Palma. The two guys that we have here both have pretty different opinions. On, uh, on the director. Um, now we'll try and keep my opinion to a minimum so I don't have any influence over the conversation. Um, yeah, so I thought that we'd just get started by you two telling your own personal relationship to De Palma and why you've formed your own opinion about this director the way that you have. Eldest first? We're doing the eldest first. Yes. The eldest and wisest. <laughs> sure. Which is me, <laughs> Bendik. Mm should just <coughs> tell our listeners that today in Bergen, 
there's a cup finale. Well, technically the cup finale is in Oslo, but Bergen is going crazy. Yeah. Everybody's out to watch the football match, and we, like the nerds we are, <laughs> are sitting in Martin's living room to talk about an 80-year-old director. <laughs> is he 80? Yeah, I think oh. so. Isn't yeah. it? Hmm? 83. 83, wow. I really want him to make one final movie. That's why you resonate with him so much. Oh, the trash <laughs> talk is beginning. <laughs> I hope that you're a Sorry. good moderator, Joe. Sorry. It's going to be a pain to edit this. <laughs> mm. All right, yeah. It's going to be very stream of consciousness. No, but yeah. my uh, relationship with um, De Palma uh, started... What was the first movie I watched with De Palma? I think it may have been Mission Impossible with Tom Cruise, which I thought was really cool at the time. And from there, I think I went on to The Untouchables, which is also a really good gangster movie um, starring Kevin Costner and Sean Connery. And it took a while before I discovered that De Palma also had a hand in genre films. Because I watched Carrie and I didn't like Carrie. I like it now. I didn't like it then. What changed? I was just too young, I think. And I think yeah. I expected more when I was younger. When I watched it, I was in my phase where I wanted the movie to be as shocking as possible mm. or as gory mm. as possible. Mm. And to me, it was just slow. I didn't appreciate all the cinematic techniques and flourishes yeah. that he puts in the film. So I was just waiting for the inevitable chaos. Yeah. And once that came, I was I didn't care. Oh. But then I watched it again as a grown-up. And I loved every mm. minute of it. And I loved the climax, the way he uses split screen and all that stuff. Um, but I'm trying to remember the first genre film like he's known for his thrillers De Palma is known for like doing two types of films he does his mainstream big Hollywood blockbusters like Mission Impossible The Untouchables uh, Carlito, Carlito's Way and then <coughs> he uses whatever money and critical clout he gets from that to fund his more personal projects and it's in those personal projects that's tend to be the most divisive mm. That's where he does his Hitchcockian thrillers. Because De Palma's uh, favorite director is uh, Hitchcock, yeah. which will surprise no one who has seen his films. No one. Because he borrows. All. Some would say he even steals. Yeah, Rebecca. Mm -hmm. hmm? Rebecca. Does he steal from Rebecca? Yeah. In which film? The, the, uh, the sexual ones. <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> that was a... That was extremely unspecific. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to explain this to you, Martin. <laughs> he saw Vertigo, and that's when he decided that cinema would should be his forte. Before that, he was a science geek. Mm -hmm. He was, saw Vertigo, and that kind of inspired him to become a filmmaker. And after he did some independent uh, movies, comedies, what have you, he veered into thriller with uh, thrillers with um, Sisters, which is his riff on Psycho. And then later... He did um, uh, Obsession, which is his riff on Vertigo. Yeah. And he's been riffing on some of the more famous Hitchcockian films, mainly Psycho and Vertigo. He borrows elements from those, and he puts those into his um, thrillers. Um, <clears throat> now that I think about it, I think the first genre film I saw from De Palma is Raising Cain. Oh. <laughs> Which is weird because that should be the last one you see because yeah. it's kind of his greatest hits. I think Dress to Kill should be the last one. 
we'll get into that. <laughs> we'll get into that. But um, Raising Cain, I bought it. I found it in like a DVD bargain bin. I bought it for like 50 kroners. Mm-hmm. And all I saw was the Palma, and I knew the Palma from the big movies that I'd seen, The Untouchable Scarface and all that stuff. Bought it. Uh, knew vaguely about John Lithgow. Um, watched it, and it just blew me away. I just thought, this is so cool. At the complete opposite. <laughs> and, and, and I was so into that film, and I was so captivated by that film. Uh, and that's when I noticed uh, De Palma's uh, cinematic style, I guess. Because, uh, sure, I noticed it in The Untouchables, and I noticed it in Mission Impossible, but it was to the forefront in Raising Kane. He employed all his tactics the way he um the way he generates suspense from really small things although i mean i guess he's famous for the scene in mission impossible where tom cruise drops yeah. to the floor and the speed of sweat yeah the needle. so yeah mm. so he's he's known for taking these little moments and just mi- milking them into this huge suspense sequence uh, but yeah that was my introduction and after that that kind of set me on my path where i kept discovering yeah. the palma films and all his uh, genre outputs including the one we're going to be talking about now yes i was obsessed for a while when i was around 19 years old mm-hmm. i tracked down everything i could of the palma yeah but how about you martin what is your relationship with the palma so i am significantly younger than you Significantly? Significantly, you want to do the numbers on that one? No, that's fine. <laughs> but uh, my original relationship was, uh, I think, yeah, fifteen to eighteen when I first started really like trying to analyze and get into film and the history of all all of it, um, and going through like a cliche list of like top hundreds or whatever, and then seeing Scarface and you hear the name all over the place um, or uh, uh, Carrie, and so I saw them, but that, uh, I saw them originally as their own separate things i hadn't gotten into like going through a director's library or analyzing what the two films it was just i saw two classics and i I don't remember much of them so many years ago um uh, but what i do remember is uh i think your first take to that it was didn't catch me originally at first uh i should have rewatched them for today Mm -hmm. i should have rewatched all of them um it didn't originally catch me. Um, Carrie, because when I saw the original Carrie was around the time the remake came out. Oh. Yeah. and I. Uh, um, That's a shitty one, isn't it? I haven't seen it. <laughs> I think De Palma is quoted in his uh, documentary. Uh, there's a documentary called De Palma, which I recommend yes, to everyone who yeah, wants yeah, yeah. to know yeah. more about De Palma. It's great, even if you don't like De Palma. It's yeah. a great documentary. Our host says it's not great. So. <laughs> hmm? Our host said the, the the remake is not great. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. The remake. Yeah. I thought you were yeah. talking about the documentary. No, 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 no. But De Palma is Is that out of pride? <laughs> yeah. I, do, I just have no interest in watching it. And yeah. uh, De Palma even comments on it in his documentary, say that it's funny that uh, uh, you can take the same source material and then make something that doesn't work at all. Yeah. I don't remember the exact <laughs> quote, but he like disses on it. Because it's a novel, right? It's Most of his the, films are based, novels. Uh, no, no, no. no? Uh, but Carrie is based on Stephen King. Yeah, yeah. that's King. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I saw them. Didn't really catch me at the time. I was a really uh, sci-fi geek, fantasy, very typical teenage. <laughs> Cut this. Yeah, <laughs> typical teenage boy. I wanted to watch Star Wars and Lord of the Rings, and then I started to branch out to see more. Um, yes, cinematography, <laughs> mm. classics, and and such. Uh, but it it was only until like the recent three or four years that 
I got more into him. So uh, still haven't seen Carlitos Way, like Mission Impossible. I rewatched all of them. That was fun. I think that's one of the most diff- like popcorny films he's made. Mm. Yeah, uh, and it it shows. Yeah, it was. No. Uh, it was. Uh, he did it because he needed a hit. Yeah. He wanted. He wanted yeah. to um, show his talents yeah. to this big movie, like he normally does. It worked. It worked. Yeah. Uh, but then I think it's three years ago now. Uh, Cinematic Bagan uh, showed a dress to kill. Mm. Uh, yeah, they did the whole the Palma thing. They did. Oh, I only I think they showed body double as well, and maybe sisters. I might have seen body double. I don't remember. But I, I very, very clearly remember Dress to Kill because I had no idea what I was going in for. I, I, I saw the the synopsis and the genres was like, oh yeah, thriller, crime, eighties, mm. eighties, um, right? Yeah, eighty, nineteen eighty, nineteen eighty, yeah. Um, completely hated it with my entire <laughs> body. I have not become angry of many films. Mm. Very few films that make me physically angry mm. but i remember going back and having to be like like two or three days later having to be like just so everybody knows i really hate this this is <laughs> to a point where i, I was pissed i i remember seeing it with my friend and she, she was laughing at us because an hour later on our way home i had to poke her and be like that was painful <laughs> and i when was this yeah i think this was 2020 pandemic like 10 people in the cinema uh, and then after we had the double screening, um, I started to appreciate um, how he built suspense a bit more, especially from Femme Fatale, mm-hmm. which is a film I can watch. Um, uh, uh, as you said earlier, on when you first originally saw the films, uh, from when you rewatched them, mm. you had you were more open to um, how he sets up his characters, how he... Uh, how he frames them and the, uh, the specific scenes where he reveals information to you. It is incredible. Yes. Yes. But <laughs> in the perspective of these characters, because uh, I love John Lithgow. Dreadful in Raising Cain. I completely disagree. I know. We talked about this. It's uh, w- because the whole trope of evil alter ego twin. Mm-hmm. Spoilers. Uh it's I, I can it's it feels like a ten year old sitting there like oh what's uh, what should the evil alter ego twin be oh he should twirl his mustache and he should talk like yeah. this meh I'm evil meh but Martin it's a black comedy <laughs> did you not get mean, that <laughs> that doesn't did mean that fly over evil your means head? means meh I smoke cigarettes and I smile with <laughs> but it's supposed to be funny it's not funny it's just weird well maybe it wasn't funny to you but it's supposed <laughs> to be funny. <laughs> That's it's the Palmer riffing on himself. Now I have to opinion. be careful not to make this into a Raising Cane doc, um, yeah. discussion. But yeah, Raising Cane is his most probably one of his most divisive films. Yes, and I'm I have to tell you I'm surprised. I was sure it was going to be the reverse that you wouldn't like Femme Fatale. Oh no, Femme Fatale was and the, the suspense and how and the details you could catch, but then uh, it went around each other and the language. We didn't have subtitles though, so. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, yeah. we've gone into the reason for that. We're not going to do that yes. again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, when that movie finished, I was like, I was looking in the mirror. I was like, did I like this? What the fuck is going on? Mm. Uh, and then Raising Cain started. And like within the five minutes, I'm like, oh, yeah, th- th- yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> mm. So what we can what we can uh, glean from this is that you do not respond well to the Palmas more overt genre outings. No, I don't. 
when he does his more stylistic exercises. Even though yeah. Femme Fatale is a stylistic it exercise, is. to be sure. And it has a lot of the same tongue-in-cheek humor that Raising Cain yeah. has. I guess I think you, I w- you, Raising Cain is more high camp. Yes. Which I assumed you would like. I didn't. Because you strike me as no. a guy who like, like campy movies. It depends. I, I think that it was the time you got with the characters before you were uh, on how you were able to connect with them. Mm-hmm. Because I've, I've figured out for the past few years that my favorite films are often genre and often can't be, but it, it's it, on, it, how do I say this? Films that try to catch the human condition. Mm. I think that's why I love sci-fi from the 80s. Uh, I like a lot of um, slower things where you, you, you really get to spend time with the character. Mm-hmm. And you, only, you get to experience them in a situation that even though that specific situation isn't uh, relatable to you, you can relate to a situation. And that's what I've resonated with. And for Raising Cain, it took me 10 minutes to be like, I don't care about this man at all. And I think that just threw me off. Well, you don't necessarily have to care about him. You're just supposed to enjoy the yes. film, enjoy all the stylistic flourishes that the Palma puts in there. Um, but that's made me think, and I may be t- completely wrong on this one, but maybe <clears throat> the new generation of sin film fans, <laughs> some of them, maybe not all of them, uh-huh. Careful. May not resonate <laughs> no, <I'm kidding. laughs> that much with De Palma because yeah. I heard several people when we had our double screening, they criticized like uh, every scene was so slow, man. Why did he spend so much time taking the camera back and forth? Yeah, and that's like De Palma's been quoted on how he he wants the audience to know where everything is. Yeah. He sets up a world. Get the audience the shots. gets acclimatized yeah. to the scene, mm-hmm. know where everything is, and then he starts carefully turning up the tension yeah and it struck me that maybe some of and i'm not sure if the crowd at bfk is like representative for the world (laughs) but at least they're representative for our crowd yes yeah and that seemed to tire someone that i don't get i don't get that either the same crowd can watch memoria yes yeah and not get bludgeoned to death my favorite film of 2022 was after sun which is the most calm slowed experienceful mm. film where you just um observe a father and a daughter on vacation mm. uh, and that hit me so hard but so at the pacing but i don't think that really matters because what the palma does in these films are masterful so i but i yes yeah, so i i'm not really sure what the divide is there now to me it just uh, and i just base this on you know, like the the few uh, impressions that I gathered post screening, yeah. but it seemed to be like, especially from the young ones, that they felt bored uh, watching the way that De Palma builds I suspense. Got another, like, which is, I mean, De Palma goes. It goes back to the famous Hitchcock quote, which I think this may be wrong, but I think Hitchcock said this to Truffaut in one of their mm-hmm. conversations that's been recorded. But I could be wrong about that. But I know Hitchcock has had like this whole story about how. You can show a scene of two men chatting in a restaurant and there's a bomb under the table Mm -hmm. and the bomb blows up Uh, after the uh, people have had the men had had a conversation. That's a surprise that catches the audience like, whoa. Yeah. But if you show the bomb at the beginning of the scene, 
you have a much more yeah. elegant structure and you can build suspense gradually because you're letting the audience in on what's going on. And De Palma has based his whole filmography around that same concept. Yeah. He he shows the audience carefully. Yes, very every carefully. Every element yeah. in every scene. Like in Just to Kill, when you see the little glint of light on the knife, mm -hmm. and then there's like a 10-minute suspense where they just talk through a mirror. Uh, yeah, it, 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 that is amazing. Mm. And w But why doesn't that translate to... Uh, because the reaction I got from we had the double screening was people getting up and laughing and saying that was fun. Mm. Not that people were bored. But you can't have fun and not think something is good, no? Like I said, <laughs> I, I think a lot of people had fun probably. But no. there were some people who, who thought it was boring. Some people thought Femme Fatale was boring and then had more fun with Racing yeah, Kane yeah. and then vice versa. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. I guess. I think, yeah, Joe wants to say something. Well, I was a uh, De Palma virgin, I suppose, yeah. before <laughs> I saw any of these films, before Bendik brought them it's to, yeah. um, to the film club. for the themes. <laughs> um, but there was a lot, I mean, I kind of didn't know anything about him. I didn't know that he made Carrie. I didn't know that he made Scarface. Mm. And I think it was like a good introduction, a good education into who he was as a director. And kind of the more films that I've then seen of him, I kind of think that he is very good at what he does. <laughs> um, I, well, after, uh, if you follow us, you've probably seen that after our double screening, we had um, a vote. And mm -hmm. the people, the audience voted in the man opposite from me, Bendik's side. So the audience likes the Palma. Hmm. Uh, I still haven't exactly put my finger on why I don't, but I th it's fun. I think a little part of me is like, it's fun to hate on <laughs> to, to, mm -hmm. to be the guy. Um but it's, I, I, I can't deny the, as we, we had a little talk about this before we started recording, I can't deny the impact and the mark he has set himself on, especially Western cinema. Mm. That is undeniable. But especially for, uh, uh, for today with the, where I think cinema is turning into uh, more like the, the world of literature where there is so much being produced and you have so many different varieties. And I know a big director made a whole movie on an iPhone camera and uh, it's getting harder and harder to know um, what to see in general. Uh, streaming services, festivals, whatever. Um, anyone can pick up a camera and make something amazing. Um, uh, and I think that has affected a lot of those directors a lot on their impact today versus like 10 years ago uh, when it was equally uh, important, I guess, for um, for you say on how he sets up for history and uh, coming out of Hitchcock and stuff like that, uh, where I think today, uh, don't really know how to say this. You know what I mean? <laughs> Just end there. <laughs> I do not, Martin. No. What are you on? <laughs> But I kind of understand there's like, mm, there was fewer voices then, and it's very yes. clear to sort of follow a line of influence. Yes. Whereas now it's like a huge saturation of like anyone has the opportunity, and yeah. there's not so much these, um, you know, like De Palma came out in a time that was like the new wave of legendary directors like yes. Scorsese, Spielberg, and De Palma. Um, so I think that's what you're saying? Yes. 
Yeah. That is what I'm saying. Yeah, so it's yeah. like uh, the impact of a director is much less now. Yes. I think. Yeah. Th that's why these yeah. old, quote-unquote, old directors don't yeah. have such a standpoint, except the ones who are still alive, yes. like Scorsese. E even the biggest directors today, um, I feel it, it's, it's not in the zeitgeist uh, for as long and as hard that it was earlier. Okay. I think it's time to get into sort of what the meat of the interview what oh i wanted yeah? to talk no? about is we've mentioned it a few times it's De Palma's controversial film i mm -hmm. guess if they're not all controversial um the 1980 dress to kill yes the genre word that you can use to describe all of De Palma's films erotic yeah yep this is an erotic psychological thriller film psychosexual that depicts the events leading up to the brutal murder of a new york city housewife before following a sex worker who witnesses the crime and her attempts to solve the crime with the help of the victim's son and it was well received i think oh that's uh kind of what we saw in the in the research but numerous critics have since uh said that this movie is perpetuating the transphobic myth that trans people are mentally ill, predators. Um, we've quoted this uh, activist group, Women Against Violence in Pornography and Media, and they quote said, the distorted image of a psychotic male uh, transgender person makes all sexual minorities appear sick and dangerous. And just generally that it's sort of fed into this long ongoing idea that was included in a lot of films that um that a, a man having a woman's side is buffalo bill yeah example. exactly so yeah. Uh, like psycho mm. sounds of the lambs it's they're saying that de palmer is just kind of adding to this uh this narrative that transgender people are um mentally ill um but in 2016 i have a quote from de palmer he said I don't know what the transgender community would think of the film now. Obviously, I realize that it's not good for their image to be transgender and also be a psychopathic murderer. Mm -hmm. But I think that the perception passes with time. We're in a different time now. He added that he was glad that the film had become a favorite in the gay community, uh, which he attributed to the film's flamboyance. That's mm. a very sweet quote. He's a really sweet guy. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. I think uh, you would uh, be, if you've seen an idea, interview, yeah. you'd be surprised by... He's just like a nice old dude who loves the cinema. Oh, okay. That, yeah. that makes me happy. <laughs> mm. Yeah, he's really chill. And uh, this is kind of what we've seen throughout all of the research that we've done is that, mm. you know, or at least I can say that, like, he did make all these films that are, like, overtly sexual and kind of objectifying and also by including what isn't correct trans terminology mm. but he's always very clear that it's not an opinion that he kind of upholds now he's always very willing to up, like you said update himself and change with the time but also reinforcing the fact that like these films were made in a different time um but yeah you can go from there because i think you both have some opinions well yeah i'll just start by saying this is probably my favorite um the Palma film. I love it. I love every element of it. I think it's there's so many good scenes in this film, and there are. It's just the Palma at the top of his game. 
and he had at this point he had had a little bit of a break from directing he went into teaching for a while at a film school um, where he met Keith Gordon who he would cast in Dress to Kill as the teenager yeah and then Michael um, Caine is Elliot Michael Caine plays Elliot Dr. Yeah. Elliot Sam mm-hmm. Elliot and um, or is it Sam Elliot I just remember Dr. because Sam Elliot is an actor yeah. <laughs> but yeah. he, he <laughs> might also be called Sam I can't really remember um, and um, and of course a yeah, Nancy Allen. Nancy Allen. Nancy yep. Allen. Um, and also, of course, the great Angie Dickinson, yep. who plays the um, um, initial main character mm-hmm. of the film, who we follow for a good 40 minutes plus before she eventually she's eventually killed. And, you know, he's been quoted on saying, like, that's, again, he borrows from Psycho. Yep. You introduce a main character, and then you kill the main character off yep. 40 minutes into the film. Um, and it should also be said like this movie Dress to Kill it's uh, a psychosexual thriller like you said one of uh, what it's also been called is uh, one of the American Jallos and Jallo was an um, Italian subgenre of mystery thrillers that incorporated um, sex and horror and uh, violence into their thrillers. They were really big in the 60s and 70s. Like one um, is Blood and Black Lace by Mario Bava and Dario Argento, of course, did a bunch of giallos. He did uh, Bird with a Crystal Plumage. He did Deep Red. Um, And they all kind of share this trope that there's usually this, usually, it's not always, but usually there's this outsider that comes in and witnessing a brutal murder. And then the outsider goes on his own to investigate what's mm. happening um, and the killer often wears black gloves Some, and and coat, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah and uh, in this movie dressed to kill mm. there's also a killer with black gloves and a wielding a razor and uh, there's also usually a lot of wil- violence towards women a lot of nudity and De Palma has been uh, one, one of the controversies with this film was of course the violence towards women he was criticized for that but the irony is that De Palma has very often been criticized and gotten in fights with the ratings board because you uh, the you um america has this own rate ratings yeah, board yeah. that are really strict with you could say they're more strict with sex than with violence but oh, yeah. they they don't like violence either and the palm has gotten into some ferocious fights ironically for scenes that are not that graphic that leaves a lot of the vi- actual violence to your imagination like there's the famous um the shower scene in scarface mm-hmm where it's not an actual shower scene but it's a guy who gets cut up with a chainsaw in a bathtub yeah and you don't see anything you just see the saw going down you see some blood on a face but that was enough to piss off the ratings board and there's a scene in body double where a woman is killed by a killer wielding just gigantic power drill and he drills her literally and you don't see the actual drilling and it's framed like that. It's yeah, fra- he yeah, frames yeah, it with yeah. two legs standing uh, in the screen, and then the drill comes down from between his legs. So it's it's literally framed in that yeah, way to yeah. invoke that feeling. But you don't see anything of the actual murder. You just see a drill going through a ceiling and some blood falling down. Yeah. But that was enough to piss them off, even though all the violence was in their minds. Is it is it because that is more efficient? Yeah, because it, whatever you produce in your mind is yeah, a lot more yeah. scary, yeah. a lot more shocking. And in Dress to Kill, ironically, it's maybe his most graphic murder, I think. Yes. Uh, there, may be a, there is murder in The Fury, his telepathic horror film, uh, which is even more 
graphic, but Dress to Kill is probably when Angie Dickinson gets killed in the elevator is probably the most brutal killing he's done. I actually have a pretty good quote in relation to his violence against women mm-hmm. um, accusations, I guess. Not that he's committing it, but he makes it. Yeah. Uh, we have uh, Julie Solomon wrote in like a, uh, an article that De Palma is frequently accused of being a perverse misogynist and that he kind of is getting off at the idea of uh, these women getting killed, to which he responded, quote, I'm always attacked for having an erotic, sexist approach, chopping up women, uh, chopping up women, putting women in peril. I'm making suspense movies. What else is going to happen to them? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very good quote. I like it De Palma. Is. He's always so refreshingly honest. But, it, but, but he, yeah, you, there could be a lot of situations where a, he, woman, a woman could get brutally murdered, but... It, that it, it's the situation it's the context yeah it is and he always yes there are some some violence toward women in his films but there also there's also violence towards men and usually the women are a lot uh the female characters are a lot cooler than the men male characters in his films usually his male characters just get shot yeah they're pathetic like the main yeah. character in, in in body double is a he's a creep yeah he's a pervert that's yeah. what he is um and De Palma has always had a knack for casting these uh, really cool female characters in his films. Um, but it's still this weird thing of women suffering, even though all the men are idiots. Yeah, but men suffer too in his films. Not as much. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I wouldn't say that, though. No. I mean, uh, in The Fury, a guy gets his, his head explodes. That's a man. Really? Yeah. No. <laughs> Mission Impossible, Emilio Estevez gets a metal rod through his face. Yeah, because the the main thing I have with De Palma is not the 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 context or the subject matter. Mm. It is the way he he gives us the information. Mm. I I find it cheesy, and at some points just annoying. Well, was it was it the twist in Dress to Kill? Um, Was it the twist, the reveal of the killer that made you angry? No, no, the little things. What little like things? like the the bad guy has to wear black because he's a bad guy. No, but that is part of the style. It's yes, a yeah, it's a jello. Yeah, I, I know, I know. Or, or the gloves, or, yeah. or the light on the knife. It's cool, mm-hmm. but it feels. Uh, I feel that he is telling me, "You're stupid. You won't get this unless I make it really obvious who's the killer." Well, yeah, and I'll I'll, I'll give you that. Like we get a scene at the end of the film after they reveal who mm-hmm. the killer is. Mm-hmm. Which is really clumsily handled, where basically it's just exposition. It's just yeah. uh, characters explaining the whole plot to make sure the audience yeah. is ca- caught up. Yes. But that is the same thing that Hitchcock does in Psycho. Yes. Which he was, man- I, I'm not sure if he was studio mandated, but he at least they put a scene in, the, in Psycho to make sure the audience would get it. Because yeah. the twist at that time was not done before. Well, yeah. So they had to like let the audience in on what, what the hell is the deal. And De Palma does the same in uh, in Dress to Kill, and I agree that scene is probably my least favorite. But I feel it's the same um, in. Um, even though I think that he sets up a pretty good mystery, even though it's easy to figure out who the killer on, is. Uh, to bring it back to Raising Kane again, <laughs> if if his alter ego was more quiet or just like maybe very similar to uh, Lithgow's original character. That would make it a lot more suspenseful for me to watch and try to figure out 
who is he now? Instead of, oh, hey, I'm John Lithgow. And then, yeah, I am evil John Lithgow. <laughs> it's just, uh, and I, you can see this in a lot of uh, films today, actually, where you say the uh, it comes from. It's, it, it's, it's explaining what is happening to me. And hmm. I think uh, an, annoy an annoying way. But uh, <laughs> don't you, um, when you watch older films, isn't, isn't that like a filter you can kind of tune yes. out yeah, because yeah. when i watch yeah, dress to kill i i don't care about the so the sometimes hokey dialogue because oh, the dialogue the, the, the palma yeah, is yeah. not always the greatest screenwriter i'll i'll say that for whoever doesn't like uh, <laughs> and also i think uh, what, I, what i watch is it's it's just the cinematic language yeah. the way he he sets up a shot the way he sets up a scene uh we'll get into some of the greatest into the best scenes in the film i'm sure we'll discuss them but oh, yeah, um, yeah. the I think a lot of the techniques that you call cheesy, like uh, the flashing of the um, razor, the light in the razor that clues the um, uh, the um, yeah, murder weapon, Nancy Allen's character, yes, yeah. uh, to that there's a killer hiding behind the, la uh, yeah. the elevator door, mm -hmm. and she has to or get away. Yeah. Under, yeah, and that's all done in slow motion. Yeah. And yes, it's probably if you watch it with the eyes of today, mm -hmm. it's limited by the technology of the time. Yeah. Um, but I guarantee you, if someone like, I don't know, Denis Villeneuve did that today, you guys would be fawning <laughs> over it. <laughs> oh, he's so brilliant. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, yeah, if you look at, like, Dune, the um, Scarscross character, the Baron, he is, it's all black, and he says, evil is my Dune. And, like, exactly. He's very stereotypically evil, but it isn't this twirly, mustachy kind of evil kind of is though i wouldn't say that <laughs> i wouldn't say baron harkin is a deep character at least in the first film no um but it's, it's just evil yeah yeah but the, yeah but that's but again you have to attribute sadism. it to the style of the film yeah. dress to kill is a stylistic exercise yeah. Yeah. it's it's um a mystery thriller that adheres to um a certain set of rules and it's um it's one of the few american jallos i can't remember the other ones but there there wasn't made that many but the whole color scheme of the film, the visual color scheme, is basically oh. a jello. I have to say, I haven't rewatched really it since uh, that dreadful day <laughs> in early. <laughs> but if we if we go if we go back to some of the great scenes, though, I mean, we're introduced early on to to uh, Angie Dickinson, who plays this sexually frustrated um, uh, woman who who um, is unhappy in her marriage, and then um, she goes to Michael Caine, who's the therapist, yeah. the, the psychiatrist, and then after that, she goes to a museum. Yeah. And that scene is probably my favorite scene in the whole film. It's so good. It's basically just this long, probably 10 minute long scene where she's sitting in the museum and she's approached by this uh, strange man and they have this, in she's cruising basically. Yeah, yeah. She's cruising for a man mm -hmm. and without any language, with just body language and looking in little glimpses, they kind of have this mating dance around mm -hmm. the museum with the camera following them around. Mating it dance. is such a beautiful scene. It's so good. It captures the thrill of the chase in such a great way. And the sexual tension in the scene is just palpable. And um, I remember an interview with Angie Dickinson where she said that De Palma, uh, had her record a voiceover for that scene that would kind of like explain what she's thinking. Oh, I should, well, I have to remember to get oh, to buy this. Worst. I have to do this. Oh, look at those people the over there. Yeah. yeah, because he said, we need this uh, just in case. It was like a backup. Don't make it and down for the then, audience. 
Exactly. Yeah. And then he said after watching the scene, uh, he told Angie Dickinson because she asked, "Okay, what about the voiceover track?" And he just smiled at her and said, "We don't need it." Yeah. Because yeah. she does it all with yes, her face. That's, that's a lot better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The same they did with. Blade he Runner. just wanted, in case that she didn't give a good enough performance to communicate yeah. what he wanted the audience to understand. Yeah. And um, it it is just such a good scene, and it leads up to this great climax where she goes into the cab they go to the hotel and then there's this whole scene where she gets up and mm. she writes him a note and then she finds this uh, <laughs> note from the department of health saying you have a venereal disease <laughs> and she gets panicked and she goes to the elevator and then she realizes she forgot her ma- her uh, her um, wedding ring so she has to go back up the shame of having to go back to, to re-watch the movie stand. in my head <laughs> right, right now yeah <laughs> And she goes back up, and then there's the killer standing right there and yeah. cuts her up in the elevator. It is such a long, is that with per the almost and dialogueless the scene. Yeah. 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 And, um, oh, wow, what a scene. It's, um, it's pure De Paula. It's, it's, yeah. uh, he, yeah. it's everything he's known it's more, for. It's more Raising Kane than. It's, it's so polarizing because he, he can make these almost action y, popcorn y films. Mm hmm. And then, but as we said, it, that is just to make his own passion projects. Mm. And then we watch these, uh, which give a, a completely different wi- vibe. So is this him expressing exactly what he wants to put on screen? Like with, uh, completely on Well, he's a technical director. Yeah. He, he's always admitted he's a technical director. He, he, he's very into how to composing a shot, how yeah. to light, how to do all this technical stuff. Um, and the actors do their thing. Yeah. And... Uh, Dress to Kill is a very technical film. It's structured around a, a twist yeah. or several twists. And it's all about, because the story is very bare bones. Yeah. And the story doesn't even make that much sense, but it makes sense in the world that the Palma sets up. <laughs> he sets up a world where it's believable that this detective played by Dennis Franz would mm. send uh, Nancy Allen out on this uh, goose chase when he could easily procure it by himself, yeah. just get a court order. Uh, of course he would get a court order when uh, the patients uh, of uh, the psychiatrist is one of the main suspects in the killing. Yeah. I mean, it's... But so, but it kind of works because the Palma just sets up this world where this is happening. It's not supposed to be a real world. It's supposed to be the Palma's yeah. world. And um, we, after that, we go... There are several like great suspense scenes along the way. There's a train chase where Nancy Allen runs from... Um, Nuns from uh, runs from these uh, guys who's trying to uh, assault her through a train. Then she's also chased by um, the um, killer Bobby. It's, it's, now, it, now it's just you re- recapping the movie. <laughs> but I feel like I yeah. have to remake it for you because yeah, yeah. your <laughs> I don't remember your mushy it. brain <laughs> yeah. can't remember it because you were busy being angry and offended by I, it. I, I wasn't offended, but I was angry. Oh really? Shall yeah. we quote your? Because you said you I, were I just said it was a stu- I could stupidest read my- shit movie. In every possible way. In every possible update, way. Uh, I'm actually angry, yes. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That doesn't sound to me like someone who's offended. Does it? <laughs> it sounds like someone who's perfectly in touch with his feelings. I am. And centered. <laughs> but I, I'm noticing now the problem. I don't remember this. I don't remember there's a train in it. There is a train. Yeah. And De Palma is not up for... Um, he, he, he's not adverse to repeating himself if something works. Mm-hmm. So um, almost the exact same uh, train sequence he puts in Carl Yudo's Way. Oh. Yeah. 
He, uh, he likes to repeat himself since something works. He's also a scene in Rest to Kill, which is very similar to a scene in Racing Kane. Um, yeah. He's just like, mm. if, if this works, I'll do it again. <laughs> That's not bad, though. I watched it yesterday. Oh, you did? I did. And then I really liked it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like, uh, I get that maybe it doesn't have like such a strong stance in our modern day age view. Yeah. Um, but I, I would. Neither do a lot of films. No, yeah, of so course. But like I, I wouldn't say that is because of the subject matter. I would say that is because of the just different time. Mm. Why? Because I don't dislike it because of the su- subject subject matter. Because after our double screening, the best part of that evening was staying for almost an hour after and talking to most of the audience. What do you think? And uh, um, the discussions that came up, that was the, the best part about it. And mm. I think that's the best part about film in general. Um, but it, it, it's... So we should have a diploma screening every no, semester. No, 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 I'm good. <laughs> okay. yeah. I can't that day, I'm sorry. Yeah, fine. <laughs> okay. I had some uh, final quotes, which I thought were pretty interesting kind of uh, unexpected uh, take on uh, De Palma's films. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So his films have always been interpreted in bad ways, but they've also been interpreted as feminist and examined for their perceived queer affinities. In the film comments, Queer and Now and Then, column on Femme Fatale, mm-hmm. film critic Michael Koreski wrote that De Palma films radiate undeniable queer energy and notes the intense appeal De Palma films have for gay critics. In her book, The Erotic Thriller in Contemporary Cinema, Linda Ruth writes, De Palma understood that cinematic potency of dangerous fucking, perhaps <laughs> earlier than his feminist detractors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think I've heard as well that he's one of these, I've talked about this recently, uh, Quentin Tarantino recently said that sex has no place in cinema and has no place in movies. It doesn't contribute anything to the plot. But I think that De Palma is one of these directors who does good sex. He's mm. showing that life is like, life is sexy, mm. people have sex. Yeah. And it is a weapon as much as it is a thing that everyone enjoys. And I think that in that regard, it's something that he's just showing as very normal, which I feel like a lot of directors do shy away from or use it as some other kind of uh, device yeah. in a way. I do sometimes feel a bit uncomfortable in the extremely long shots of women's bodies in his movies but then again that's not for me no so well uh, was it ebert who said that um uh, um cinema is the art of the soul or like it's supposed to encapsulate the human condition in any in every way and sex is a part of the human condition Hmm. so even portraying it like this is portraying the human condition mm. i would say yeah and i think whenever he shoots his and there's probably people who will disagree with me but i think uh, when he shoots whether it be a uh, woman showering uh showering a lot more sensually than i suspect women shower in actual life i don't <laughs> yeah, think they a- i don't think they use the shower handle like quite sex, that way saxophone in the background right um but uh, i do think that there's uh, i don't think it's leering sometimes you can look at a film and you can see that this is sleazy this yeah, is a yeah. horny director that's almost masturbating behind the camera looking at this uh, but i think the palma is 
he I has. Didn't know a, he was so sweet. He has a <laughs> <laughs> true cinematic language to what he does, and I think he tries to to show it as something beautiful and not something sleazy. And I do want to get mm-hmm. my two cents in because we've been dancing around the topic of of the main controversy of Dress to Kill. Yeah. Um, that some probably um, some can take offense of is that the killer is um, show uh, or explained to be this um, transgender person who wants to become a woman and in the movie it's explained like when his male half (laughs) takes over when he gets aroused he gets an erection that's when the female side uh, takes over to destroy that whenever he gets uh, aroused the the female half takes over Um, and I'm not here to say that if if you as a um, if uh, if a transgender person gets offended by that of course you're allowed to everybody's entitled to be offended but i don't think when i read the film it seems to me like the palma just he, he he doesn't understand it enough i mean he takes a concept and he makes a thriller uh, the way um william friedkin uh, wanted the gay leather bar as an bars to be a setting for his mm. movie cruising he didn't care about uh, how it would affect anything other than he just wanted yeah. an exotic backdrop for a movie and um movie Exactly, yeah, it was, yeah. and and it's no. Uh, I think that what may be misunderstood about the film is that when I I don't read the the killer of this film as a transgender character, because the killer of this film clearly has a multiple personality disorder, um, and not transgender. He just happens to have two personalities: one is female, one is male, and De Palma somehow sells that in as a transgender i don't i don't see what the transgender thing has to do with this because it's in reality it's just someone with multiple personality disorder yeah a silly yes. murder plot so yeah so so all that other stuff i think is just something to palma hooked on because he he got he, he read about it and he thought oh this is maybe maybe cool for a movie yeah so you can call it insensitive sure and it does open you couldn't you couldn't make it today of course but i don't think it per pay, um it 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 pushes a myth on transgender people being mentally ill i think it doesn't push that myth anything more than say um the idea of people with multiple personality disorder being like they're portrayed in this film or in raising cane or in psycho or in silent or not silence of the lambs but any other yeah, films yeah. where or in secret window with johnny depp mm. <laughs> where it's just basically the a complex mental illness is reduced to you just looking in a mirror and seeing a different person. And uh, it's just used as a twist, a disguise for a twist. And movies has been doing this for ages, simplifying complicated uh, mental illnesses to make for a sleazy thriller. And they do the same thing with mental asylums. Mental asylums over the years has been portrayed as one thing, scary places with people in straitjackets, screaming and going uh, crazy, because it's an effective tool in a horror film. Uh, yeah, I had so many thoughts after uh, that, uh, that <laughs> sentence. Uh, I think one of the main things was um, there is a responsibility mm-hmm. uh, if you decide to... Uh, 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 because I know Buffalo Bill has been compared to Buffalo Bill um, um, where he... Um, what did he do? I, I read an article where he... Um, but Buffalo Bill isn't... Uh, if I remember both the book and the movie correctly he isn't an actual transgender character i think in the movie they mention it in like a sentence in the book it's a whole chapter dedicated to explaining 
why he is not an actual transgender what is it? His urge. person. That whatever he does in the film yeah. comes from something else. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. But but I still think there is um, a a responsibility mm-hmm. of uh, whenever you represent something, even though that might not be the main thing of a character or a situation or, uh, as we see in these films, the 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 crime or the the psychology behind it. I th- I still think there is a a small point of responsibility to make sure you understand uh the situation behind it yeah but again we're we'll go back to that uh, it's it was a different time yeah but like, like i couldn't make a movie about let's say uh the killings in cambodia because i i don't know anything about that i have never been a part of it i don't it's not close to me so that would just feel false yeah but that's again this is what we, this is what we're doing now but back then Directors took an exotic topic and just made a movie. Kevin Costner made Dances with Wolves. Yeah. I, I don't see any uh, Native American genes. What in I do him. like about it is it opens <laughs> up a, a, a good conversations. If it's for yeah. or against. But don't you think? Don't you think that like the audience of today? Do you think that we have to? Do you think that they're grown up enough to understand that if we screen Dress to Kill, would they be grown up enough to understand that? Okay, this is made from a different time. Um, we can uh, you can show this movie in a cinema without um, making a stance. Yeah, you're, you're not aligning yeah. with yourself with whatever yeah. is presented in the film. Or do you think that we've become we're at that point we have to make content warnings for everything to make sure the audience understands that this is not our policy? Which kind of angers me. But I'm an old yeah. ang- <laughs> I'm an old angry man, so I'm welcome I to. I think so. Because we we always contextualize what we f- screen anyway, mm-hmm. and w- like the sentence you just said, that would be a great opening, and then please let us know what you think about the film afterwards, like we did with the, uh, with our double screening. Mm. So, I, b- but then again, I think context is important. It's uh, like dividing the the art from the artists. Mm. It could be anything. It could be uh, uh, the Unabomber's manifesto, Ted Kaczynski's manifesto. It could be Hitler. It could be um, a Me Too actor. Uh, or it could be the subject matter of a director. Uh, I, th- I think context is so important. Uh, and now, like for our double screening, your introduction was amazing. Thank w- you. Yeah, it was so good. You went through the history and how he made his films and why his, he made his films. Hearts. <laughs> Sorry, interrupting. Um, I think that opens up so much more understanding and, uh, and love for both the art and the discussion. Mm. Um, but if you just portray it as this is the message, mm. put it into the ether, then I think it, it loses some of its art and some of its power. Mm. So like I, that's why I love us doing this episode because it, it just, that contextualizes it, but it gives it more meaning mm. on why these films still should be watched, why we should talk about them, um and shit like that yes joe i'm gonna be a killjoy mm-hmm. we're running out of time mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah but i just thought that was a very nice way to end uh, i thought you uh summed it up really nicely martin thank you yeah uh martin having the last word. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> trash talking me from across the yeah. <laughs> oh well that was that was fun I really enjoyed. Thanks so much to Bendik and Martin for joining. It was a really good discussion. I think that 
I'll try and do more episodes like this in the future because uh, not that I don't love talking, but it was kind of nice to sort of take a backseat and sort of control the, the conversation in, in a way. Like my desire for control, I could really exercise over these two men. It was great. Next week, I know that I said this many weeks ago now, but we will be talking about Midsommar and about Ariosta and Bo is Afraid. So that's, that's, that is coming. And I think that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, but yeah, another great episode. It's good to be back. Sorry for the hiatus. And yeah, like I said, it's got some good things coming. Exciting projects arriving soon to your ear holes. But thank you very much for listening. This has been The Real Thing. I have been Joel Lawrence. Thank you and goodbye. This has been a Bergen Film Club production. Our music is by Wise John. Check them out on Instagram at WISE John Official. Our logo is by Pia Sophia Brentesen. This episode was produced, mixed, and engineered by Joel Lawrence. Our researchers are Inke Schilbreibern and Mamina Nasmajit. Want to talk to us about films? Then please send us an email at podcast at bergenfilmclub.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at TheRealThingPod. Check us out on Letterboxd at BFK The Real Thing. Thank you and goodbye. Listen, follow, leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts.